Well, every blessing to you all, and welcome back to Open Air Pulpits. I think it's fair to say that so far, this is the warmest day of the year. So I'm going to get stuck into the book of Genesis because it's going to get very hot. And what I don't want to do is battle the sun as I <laughs> work my way through the Word of God. Normally when I come to the open air pulpits, as you know, I'm dealing with a cold, or I'm dealing with flies, or I'm dealing with the wind. Well today, praise the Lord, I'm dealing with the sun. Genesis chapter 12, let's start, if we may, in verse 1, please. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing, and I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. So we start off with Abraham, meaning father of many nations. In fact, go back to Eve, very briefly if you will. She is referred to as a mother of all living. And there are probably five or six women in the Old Testament that are types of Mary, the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ. All those women, good women of course, but they weren't sinless. Only Christ was sinless. And people say, well, if Mary wasn't uh, sinless, how could she give birth to a sinless man? Well, I remember some years ago, I went to visit one of my GPs and I said to him, by the way, doctor, is it true that uh, when a woman is pregnant, the father's blood and only the father's blood enters into the placenta and he said to me yes that is correct and I thought wonderful of course we didn't know such uh, medical facts until recently but back in the day like 2,000 years ago when the Holy Spirit came upon Mary and she fell pregnant it of course was God the Father's blood that would find its uh, way into the woman's placenta being Mary so she was sinful while at the same time giving birth to a sinless man isn't science wonderful <laughs> but here you've got a picture of a literal man called abram not yet called abraham and there are several people in scripture who get their names changed it isn't just simon peter which the catholics would have you believe you've got james and, and john the sons of zebedee they get a new name over in the gospel of uh, mark in fact if you, if you get a chance to get the book of revelation which praise the lord i finished this past sunday you get a new name once you are born again, which only the Lord knows, and he gets a new name, which only you know. So it's not just one man like Simon Peter who got a new name, and they use that incidentally as some kind of a proof text, some kind of way to justify the papacy, which of course is false. 12.1 again. Now the Lord, being Elohim in Hebrew, which would denote Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. It's a picture there of salvation. What does uh, 2 Corinthians say? Which is my next project, by the way. Enjoy me this coming Sunday, if you will, when I start 2 Corinthians. It says over in chapter 6, Come out from among them, touch not the unclean thing. Don't even uh, uh, be contaminated with their garments. From the book of Jude, I seem to recall. So Abram, up until this time, was a polytheist. He was worshipping many gods. In fact, if you read 
over in Joshua, I think it's 24, from memory, it speaks about how the fathers would worship gods on the other side, and we believe that one of the gods that they worshipped was the pagan god called Allah, which of course what the Muslims worship. But the Lord doesn't leave Abram as he is, he doesn't say, well, if you want to worship other gods and squeeze me in somewhere, that's all good and well, no. He, he calls him out, which is a picture of your salvation, which is a picture of my salvation. You are called out of the world. You become a strange sort of person, a peculiar person. You have no time for the things of the world, and yet at the same time you are still living in this world system. And many times the world system will overtake you, and then you have to repent and start all over again. Get out of your country and from your kindred and from your father's house unto a land that I will show thee. Jesus would say, if you love your father or your mother, if you love your sister or brother, if you love anyone more than me, you're not worthy of me. He would say, pick up your cross every day and follow me. There's a picture there of denying yourself. Not always easy to do, is it? And people say, well, I don't know, I'm pretty holy. Well, look at it this way. Let's say you are pretty holy, and you should be. The Word of God says, be holy, for I am holy. 1 John chapter 2 says uh, to make sure that when we appear at the judgment seats of the Lord, we're not ashamed. But let's just say that you are pretty holy, and let's just say you are able to reach many goals in your life. How about the things that you can't reach? How about not being able to pray as much as you should? How about not being able to, uh, or how about being unable to turn food away? You just finish a nice big meal and you think to yourself, I wouldn't mind some gatto <laughs> or some cheesecake or some ice cream. And you think, well, should I, should I not? A lot of calories and such, cakes. You start licking your lips thinking, well, I don't know. It looks very yummy. But uh, at the same time, you're trying to lose weight. At the same time, you're trying to get your cholesterol level down. At the same time, you are trying to protect the temple, the holy temple, which causes your body. You say, well, I'll start the diet tomorrow. I'll start the diet next week. And you start to give in, you start to compromise, and you have a slice of cake. Then you think to yourself, I'll get some cream. And you put some cream on the cake. Then you, then you say to yourself, I wouldn't mind some ice cream. <laughs> and you get some ice cream. And before you know it, you're bloated. You've failed, haven't you? Leave your family, kindred, country, and head off into a land. Now the land that he will give Abram will be the Middle East as we know it today. Uh, most of the Middle East as we know it today isn't uh, in the hands of the Jews because the Jews were faithless on so many occasions, but the land is still theirs. And therefore when the new earth commences and King David and co are resurrected to rule and reign on the new earth with the Messiah, they're going to get the entire Middle East, like Jordan, like Syria, like Saudi Arabia, like Lebanon. Incredible. But we can spiritualize this and apply it to those of us today, like coming out of the world system and turning your back on such people. And I'll tell you something, if you struggle to let go of the world, and most Christians do, sooner or later, if you start to grow as a Christian, sooner or later, if you spend any time in the scripture 
and in prayer, I guarantee your friends will turn around and just walk away from you. It may start with your family, but they will leave you if you don't, lose, if you don't leave them or if you can't leave them. Two again, and I will bless, or I make of thee a great nation. I'm going to make you a great nation, Abram, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. It's very reminiscent of the Son of God. He'll be great. He'll be called the Son of the Highest. John the Baptist will come and turn the fathers unto the Lord. That's a good scripture also for the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord will start with Abram. Go back to the first chapter of Genesis. Starts off very well. Day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six, rest. And the Lord said it was very good. Chapter two, Adam and Eve are enjoying themselves in the garden, the living outdoors. It's lovely weather like today. They're not clothed also. And they're told, whatever you do, stay away from that tree over there. And that tree is a tree of life, which is then mentioned again in Revelation chapter 2. And they were told, whatever you do, blah, 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 like I say, but stay away from that tree. So far, so good. Then chapter 3 comes along, and the serpent arrives, and he interferes with Adam and Eve. A decent, upright couple. The jury is out as to whether or not they were sinless, like Jesus Christ, but they were decent people, they hadn't yet sinned, and of course when they were put to the test, as everyone is put to the test, they buckled, and of course you know the rest. So it starts off all very well, chapter 1, chapter 2, but by chapter 3, catastrophe. By chapter 3, uh, apostasy. By chapter 3, spiritual death. Go to uh, chapter 5. You have a mention of the genealogies, you have a mention of Adam and Eve, and it mentions they've got two sons from uh, chapter 4, I should say, I think I slightly skipped a chapter. But chapter 4, you've got Cain and Abel, two brothers, pretty similar in age. One's a good man, like a shepherd, like Christ, the other's a bad man, like the devil, like the Antichrist. And of course, you know what happens, they get into an altercation, and Cain murders Abel. Ends in catastrophe. You start with a blessing, and you end with a curse. It's like Revelation chapter 1. Whoever reads it, whoever hears it, and believes it, is blessed. Praise the Lord. Go to chapter 22. Whoever tampers with the scripture, like verses 18 and 19, loses their place in the book of life, loses their place in New Jerusalem, and the Lord will add the plagues that are mentioned in Revelation to such people. You have to handle the scripture so carefully and people say, well, James, are you worried about losing your salvation? No, not at all. Because it's not my salvation to lose. If it's not mine to lose, how can I lose it? People say, well, David was, was uh, praying that he wouldn't lose the Holy Spirit. David was a king over a people. Are you a king over a people? David was a priest over a people. Are you a priest over a people? David was a prophet over a people. Are you a prophet over a people? In fact, when David lived and ruled in Jerusalem, perhaps a third or a fifth, no more than half of the Old Testament had yet been written. He was receiving revelation. We call that progressive revelation. That's very uh, clear from the book of Acts. That's why it was so important for the early church to meet as a unit. 
because the apostles were receiving light from the Lord. Their associates were receiving light from the Lord. In fact, the New Testament wouldn't be written until probably 20, 30 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, it's possible that Matthew was written maybe 39 AD, as Schofield suggests in his reference Bible. He may be right, and it's also possible that the epistle of James, or James's epistle, was written around 44 AD, which if you were to cross-reference back into Acts, you are around maybe chapter 8, chapter 9, perhaps chapter 10, but not yet up to Acts chapter 15. So my point is this, the apostles, their associates, but especially the apostles, were receiving ongoing revelation. Hence why they met every day, Acts 1. How they broke bread every day, Acts chapter 2. Going into Acts 3, Acts 4. It's also something new. It's something like a new job, for example. You start a new job. It's a job that you've wanted all your life. And you love it. You can't wait to go to work and you can't wait to return home. Well, I should say you can't wait to go to work and you don't want to return home. You love your job so much. You're on cloud nine. And that's how I think it was for the early church. They were in love with the Lord, amen. They were in love with the scripture, amen. And they were in love with one another, amen, as well. Their friends and family were unbelievers, probably for the most part. And therefore they wanted to spend whatever time they could with like-minded people. Fast forward to, say, 65, 70 AD, you've got the entire New Testament written. All of the apostles, apart from perhaps one or two, have died. John, of course, would be the last to leave the earth, and he would write Revelation, which, like I said, praise the Lord, I've just finished. It's taken me 39 weeks, can you believe, from start to end, but what a great blessing it was. And then once John dies, once he writes Revelation, he goes to heaven, of course. He's probably one of the uh, 24 elders mentioned in uh, Revelation chapter 4. And that's it. We have the scripture then. That is our final authority. Three again, and I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. So it's like a street preacher, for example, going on to his local street or heading off to his local town, maybe once a week, it may be once every other week, it may be once a month, and he starts to preach the gospel. And Jesus says, uh, if, you, uh, if a man hears what you preach and receives it, he's received me, and if a man rejects what you are preaching, he has rejected me. Slight paraphrase, please excuse me. But the street preacher, if he's a good man, if he's a born-again man, more importantly, when he preaches, when he preaches the gospel, is doing so with Christ inside of him. We know that Christ lives in all of us, which, if you go back to the Old Testament, wasn't the case. In fact, King David, let me just further explain King David very briefly. When he was praying that the Lord wouldn't take the Holy Spirit from him, he wasn't referring to his salvation. He was referring to his anointing. I mean, imagine a king on a throne with, what, 10, 15 million people? Or maybe a little less, a little more, I don't know the exact numbers off the top of my head, but you've got a king on a literal throne ruling over many people in the millions easily. He couldn't do that for five minutes without any kind of an anointing. Or put it this way, 
you try and live for the Lord if you're not filled with the Holy Spirit. You try, and, you try and live for the Lord if you're carnal. You try and do anything for the Lord if you haven't prayed in a week, if you haven't read the scriptures in a week. And you will fall flat on your face. So Abram becomes Abraham. Abram is a type of Christ. And Abram will be the first Jew. He's called a Hebrew in the book of Genesis. But like I say, it starts off all very well. Creation, the Lord blesses his work. The devil arrives and messes it all up. The Lord says to Adam and Eve, who's going to come first and repent? Who's going to come clean? And of course, they pass the buck, like you know, and he deals with Adam and Eve. And when he gets to the devil, he doesn't forgive him also. Because the devil can't be forgiven. Once the devil fell and his minions, they couldn't be forgiven. Which kind of feeds into Revelation 22, 18 to 19. And I was able to touch on that last Sunday. And I'll tell you something, I'll get back to this in a minute. When we talk about the most terrifying scripture or scriptures in the Bible, never mind Matthew 7, 21 to 23, many will say to me that day, Lord, Lord, sons of forth. We know such people were never saved to begin with. Never mind Hebrews 3, 6 and 10, if we sin willfully, sons of forth. Or if we do this, or we, you know, if we do that, or if we neglect so great salvation, there's no more sacrifice of sins. We know what that's all about. Never mind the sins of the flesh, like adultery, fornication, blasphemy, lying, stealing, this and that. Uh, Corinthians 6, Galatians 5 makes it very clear that such people, if they're saved and do such things, like forever and never repent, risk the potential of losing their millennial inheritance and will quite likely find themselves being whipped. Uh, Luke chapter 12, by the Lord Jesus Christ, because they were sinful, they were rebellious, and because they wouldn't repent of their uncleanness, like I say, the Lord would deal with them. Never mind those passages. Listen, if you're saved, you are safe. Okay, once saved, always saved. If saved, always saved. But you get to Revelation 22, 18 and 19, and the Word of God says, if any man or woman adds to the Scripture or takes from the Scripture... Three things will happen to you. Your name comes out of the book of life. You lose your place in New Jerusalem, and you get the plagues that are spoken of in Revelation, which will be far worse than what Pharaoh experienced put on you. For me, that's the most terrifying scripture, because every, or most Bible uh, expositors, I should just qualify that, most Bible teachers, most Bible expositors from Westcott and Hort have thought nothing of correcting the Bible, and I mean any Bible, but especially the King James Bible. They have made fun of the King James Bible, and they've written books against the King James Bible. They have changed verses, like in the NIV, they've taken verses out of the NIV. They have changed the New King James. They have changed the ESV. They even changed the Greek texts that they work from. They become a law unto themselves. In fact, I remember watching maybe a year or so ago a preach online somewhere in America, and he was preaching to his congregation, and he had a big uh, teleprompter behind him, 
and I don't really watch that kind of stuff because most of those guys are fakes anyway. But I thought I'd stick with it. There's you know, nothing else to watch. And I watched this guy somewhere in America, very smooth, very slick, the usual sort of you know salesman kind of thing. And he was preaching some kind of a message. I can't remember what it was about. And like I say, a big teleprompter behind him. And he was walking around saying, now uh, turn to, let's say, 1 John chapter 3, for example. In the ESV, it says, quote, then he says, go to Acts 9.3, shall we say. In the King James, it says, quote, now turn back to Matthew 8.4. In the NIV, it says such and such. Go here, go there, go to the New King James, go to this version, go to that version. And he was quoting versions I've never even heard of. And I thought, why would you do that? And of course, I know why he was doing that, because he wants to be the final authority. He wants his church to look up to him and say, what a great man our pastor is. And yet he can't give a 30-minute Bible study using one translation. People like him mess with the Scripture. People like him add to the Scripture. They take from the Scripture. In fact, even preachers in the UK will get to, for example, uh, 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 3 speaks about to the bishop, desires an office, so on and so forth. I think it's chapter 3 from memory. <coughs> I've heard preachers in the UK that have said, well, it should actually say this. And they change the word bishop to overseer. They take the word office out of the text and they completely mangle it. Who gave you the right to do that? Would you do, you know, would you do that to Shakespeare? Would you do that to your medical books? Would you go into your place of employment and move the furniture around? Would you go into your boss's office and sit on his chair or her chair? What gives you the right to open the Holy Bible with your dirty hands and start taking verses out or put words in? You've got no right to do that. And those people, if I understand Revelation 22, 18 to 19, are in a very bad way. I mean, concern their salvation. Very bad way. And I will, Lord willing, spend some time looking at that piece of scripture in more detail, probably in the summertime. So Abram, Abraham, type of Christ, is called out, like you and I, called out of the world system, is given an anointing, given a commission like you and I, going to all the world, preach the gospel, so on and so forth. He's told to leave friends and family behind like we are. If you love anyone more than me, you're not worthy of me, so on and so forth. And anyone who messes with Abraham will feel the full wrath of the Lord upon him. And it's like this. Let's say you are a street preacher, or let's say you go into the streets. Let's say you actually speak to people and you warn them about hell. Within five minutes of doing such, you really feel the heat in your face. You feel the heat coming from underneath you. You feel the pressure, the pushback from those all around you. You feel hostility. Shut your mouth, they say. Who do you think you are? And Christians walk past you and start wagging their fingers in your, you know, in your face saying, you shouldn't be doing it this way. You should be doing it that way, so on and so forth. There's a lot of pressure to keep your mouth shut. And many times it comes from the church professing church, not the world. And in Abraham will come the arrival eventually of the Messiah. Go to 17, please. 
And the Lord played Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, or Sari, Abram's wife. Abram gets a name change. Sari, Sarah gets a name change. Like I say, there are several people in the scriptures who get a new name. Simon Peter, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and I seem to call also Barnabas in the book of Acts, also gets a new name. But here the Lord is going to pick a couple. Now, to the world, they were nothing special, much like you and I, we're nothing special. Paul speaks about people like us in 1 Corinthians being just ordinary people, not particularly bright, nothing much to look at. In fact, for the most, we, we are pretty, uh, you know, uh, normal people, I suppose, for lack of a better word. We don't really stand out. We're not particularly articulate. We're not particularly bright. You know, we're not uh, presidents. We're not prime ministers. We're not uh, VIPs. We're not what the world would suggest or would believe to be uh, something special or they don't, they don't aspire to be like you and I. In fact, they probably hate us because we make them feel uncomfortable. So the Lord will pick himself, someone like Abraham and Sarah, up in years, and he will do a great miracle with them like he would do with the parents of John the Baptist. No doubt they were polytheists. Most of the people from Genesis were before they met the one true God. And he picks out this couple because there's been apostasy. Chapter 6, the flood arrives. Chapter 6, you've got the, <coughs> the sons of God, demons, devils, fallen angels, call them what you will, messing around with the daughters of women, causing them to become pregnant. And of course, you know what happens. That was one of the main reasons why the flood came. So it starts off all very well, like I say. It starts off with blessings, and then sin arrives in the camp. It's like you get saved and you go for maybe six months, seven months, eight months, and you are pretty much on cloud nine and you can't get enough of the Lord. You can't get enough of his word and you are opening your mouth to people all around you. And then something comes your way. Could be a close one, could be someone who you know very well and yet isn't saved. And they start putting a pressure on you to compromise, to keep your views to yourself. And for the first time in your life, you're now faced with a dilemma. What do I do? Do I shun my family as well? Do I shun my work colleagues as well? I'll tell you a quick story. Before I was saved, when I was a teenager, I had a Saturday job. And on one occasion, I went to work Saturday morning and there were work colleagues that also in this particular place of employment that I was at for maybe six months or so. Hadn't yet left school, so still at school, but Saturday job, like I say. And I forget the details of the whole thing, but I got into some kind of an argument with one of the guys there, slightly older than me, and I can still remember him now, tall chap, very gaunt, not a particularly nice chap, but then maybe I wasn't particularly nice either then. I was a typical uh, teenager, somewhat oversure of myself, a little arrogant probably. And we got into a conversation, I can't remember what it was all about. Words were exchanged. And he said to the work colleagues, my work colleagues and his work colleagues, uh, no one talked to James anymore. Nobody talked to James anymore. And now I'm about 16 at the time, 15, 16 not yet 
uh, <laughs> aware of how the world works, you know, when it comes to working with adults. Like I said, I'm still at school at the time. But that kind of, you know, hit me pretty hard. I thought, wow, you know, I've got an eight hour shift ahead of me now. And this guy, maybe 20, 21, 22, not much older than me at the time, made it very clear that nobody was to talk to me for the rest of the day. And that thing went on for the whole day. And it wasn't very nice, I can tell you. Switch it around, you're born again. You arrive at work in the morning and you've got an eight hour day ahead of you. You've got a 10 hour day ahead of you. You've got a 12 hour day ahead of you. And you're the only safe person there. Are you gonna take them all on? You're gonna fight them all, are you? You're gonna say to your boss, watch your mouth? You're gonna argue with, with customers on the phone when they start to blaspheme? You're gonna pull people up all around you for their language? Try it sometime, it's not easy. And yes, I have tried it myself, it's very difficult. You want to, if you can enjoy yourself at work, you want to put a good day's work in. You don't want to be fighting your boss or your work colleagues and have them turn around and say, don't talk to James for the next five, six, seven, eight or more hours. Or you go into such a place and you decide not to speak to them because they make you just repulsive. They, you know, turn your stomach because they are filthy. You learn to toughen up. You learn to ride it out. You don't allow such people to get under your skin. And if you've got any sense, you will take time out before you start work to pray. And if you can, read the scriptures on the way to work. And if you get a lunch break, spend time in the scriptures. And of course, when you come home, rest up. Read the scriptures some more. 18. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that thou hast done unto me? Why dost thou not tell me that she was thy wife? So Abraham and Sarah, good couple, up in years, like I say, but they're fearful. They are apprehensive. It says over in Acts, I think it's 10 from memory, that there was a group of people praying for Peter. He's been detained. In fact, I think it's chapter 5. <clears throat> well, I may be wrong on that, but anyway, it's back in Acts somewhere. And he's been detained, and they're praying for him. And the Lord answers their prayer. And he arrives at this person's house. I think her name is Rhoda, by memory, or from memory. And he's knocking on the door. And she knows it's him because she recognizes his voice. But she's too fearful to open the door. It's one of those strange scriptures because she's been praying with other people, no doubt without, you know, without ceasing. <clears throat> and when he arrives at her front door, like the Lord's answered their prayers, she is reluctant to open the door. She's fearful. It says over in uh, Matthew 28, and also I think it's John 20, that the apostles were up in the upper room praying. They were fearful because of the Jews, the leaders over Israel. Fear is an actual thing. Fear can be a snare, of course, but fear can be a good thing as well. Fear can keep you on your toes. It can keep you alive. So... I'm not gonna be overly too hard on Abraham and Sarah for being fearful and therefore not revealing their true relationship. Number one, it wasn't anyone else's business. Number two, they were fearful. Of course, let's add a third part to this. They also perhaps lacked some fear, some faith I should say. They lacked 
some faith that Jehovah would take care of them. And, of course, we've all been guilty of that. We get saved, we trust Christ to save us, like I say. It's his gift to us. It's not our salvation, it's his salvation. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So why should we be fearful of losing our salvation when it wasn't ours to begin with? It's a free gift. But we fail, we get fearful, and we sometimes take our eyes off the Lord and we try and do things ourselves and make a mess of it. And yet, Revelation, excuse me, uh, Romans, Romans 8.28 says, How all things, not some, but all things, work together for good to those which are loved, to those which are the called in Christ Jesus, like paraphrase, excuse me again. <laughs> Look at uh, 19, please. Why saidest thou, she is my sister? So I might have taken her to meet a wife. Now therefore, behold thy wife, take her and go thy way. So on the one hand, I feel somewhat uh, sympathetic to Abraham for keeping his relationship with his wife to himself. At the same time, Pharaoh is probably a typical hot-blooded guy, and he saw Sarah, a, a beautiful woman, like David with, uh, David would uh, with Bathsheba, and he thought, I'll take her for myself. But of course, she was Abraham's wife, hence why Pharaoh, verse 17, and his house are played. So you get saved, and you start going out for the Lord, living for the Lord, and if you remain faithful, he will bless you. And if people mess around with you, if people come up against you, he will deal with them. He will deal with them in his own way. He may put someone on a sickbed. He may take someone's income from them. He might take their family from them. He might even, worst case scenario, take their lives. Because you are a chosen vessel. You are greatly beloved. And therefore, he is very jealous over you. Behold thy wife, take her, 19, and go thy way. Get out of my house, get out of my sight, Abraham. You almost caused me to take your wife, who was Abraham's half-sister, incidentally, and it would have caused problems for me and my home. Which also shows, even back in Genesis, there was a level of morality. In some cases, more than we have today. But go back to what I said a few moments ago. Sins of the flesh, Corinthians 6. Uh, Galatians 5 can be cleansed by the blood. In fact, 1 John tells us, and I never tire of sharing this piece of scripture, that if we confess our sins, he is just and faithful to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That's a great scripture. Because sooner or later, you will have to get on your knees, if you haven't already, and confess your faults to him. And tell him, number one, you know good, which of course he knows already. Number two, that you need more of his grace, which of course he knows already. And number three, that you want to live for him. You want to try and stay on track. But don't kid yourself. Don't think for one moment that because you're now saved, whether you're a man or woman, married or unmarried, young or old, boy or girl, that somehow you've got it all down. You may have the scripture down. You may have the dispensations in the right place down. You may have the Bible issue clear. You may be a King James man, 
or woman, you may be pre-millennial, you may be pre-tribulational, but that doesn't mean anything if you allow your heart to grow cold. 13.8 And Abram said unto Lot, Let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee, and between my herdmen and thy herdmen, for we are brethren. And Abram said unto Lot, another, another character comes into the scripture, Let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee, and between my herdmen and thy herdmen, for we are brethren. Lot is a saved man. Peter says he was a righteous man, but he was a carnal man. He would lift up his eyes and see the land all around him, like you know, I could do today if I was to spin the camera around. And he thought to himself, I'll have that, I'll have that, I'll have that, and I'll have that. Very lustful, whereas Abraham said, take what you want. It's all good. At the same time, Abraham wasn't perfect. Later on, and I may have time to get to it this morning, he would go into his servant's room, shall we say, Hagar, and sleep with her. And of course, you know the rest, she gives birth to Ishmael. He was told to wait. But like most men, he was weak, like Adam. Like most men, he probably had a temper problem, like Cain. And like most men, he couldn't wait. He was impatient. And of course, you know what came as a result? Two nations. Jacob, have I loved? Esau, have I hated? Jacob, of course, is Israel. And I like to spiritualize Esau to represent Islam. Israel, have I loved? Islam, have I hated? I may explain that in a few videos' time. Nine. Is not the whole land between thee, or before thee, I should say? Got the whole land before you? Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If thou wilt take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if thou depart to the right hand, then will I go to the left. Abraham was a mature man. Like I say, he's up in years. And Lot was a younger man. And like most younger men, he would need to be schooled. Like most younger men, he would need someone to look up to. And it's very difficult today. If you are a new Christian, a young man, maybe in your 20s or your 30s, to try and find someone to look up to. Please allow the helicopter to fly over. It's very difficult because there aren't many good men left anymore. And if you find a good man, he won't be perfect. He will let you down. Listen, I will let you down. You will let me down. I'm no good, you're no good. None of us are any good. That's why Christ died for us. That's why those of us which are saved desperately need a saviour to save us from all our past, present and future sins. And on top of that, to daily cleanse us from our fleshly sins, sins of commission, sins of omission. 10. And Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of the Lord, like the land of Zor, excuse me, like the land of Egypt, as thou comest unto Zor. So 13, 8 to 10, 
now concerns the land. Yes, it's a free gift, but you've got to go in. You've got to fight for it. Like your millennial inheritance, you get born again. Uh, John 3 says you are able to see the kingdom of God. But what happens after you get saved? And you start to backslide. You start to not discipline yourself anymore. Like the food analogy, like the lack of prayer, like the lack of scripture reading, like I don't care about people all around me, they can all go to hell, I won't open my mouth anymore. People can get very bitter very quickly. I've met Christians who are very bitter about so many issues and it kills them. It's like cancer, it eats you from within and they become just worthless. They don't bear fruit, they are a complete failure when it comes to serving the Lord. But praise God, not when it comes to their salvation. So the land is theirs for the take. Your place in the millennium is there for the take. Salvation is a different thing altogether. Salvation <clears throat> has been given to everyone. Christ has died for the sins of the world. Never mind what the Calvinists say. Salvation is offered to every man, woman, and child. And I've spent so many times over the years trying to explain how the sovereignty of the Lord works and the free will of man works. I won't go over it again today. 14. And the Lord said unto Abram, after that lot was separated from him, lift up now thine eyes. I look from the place where thou art northward and southward and eastward and westward. For the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever. So Abraham, or Abram, Abraham, Hebrew, Jews, from Abraham will come Isaac, uh, Jacob, 12 tribes, Moses, Aaron, David, Solomon, right up until our blessed Saviour, Jesus Christ. They need, they need a place to live. They need a place to settle down. They need a place to build up their roots, if you will, a place to live and die. And of course, that is Israel. But like I say, it's not just Israel. If you look at a map today, it's far greater than Israel. But due to sin in Israel, like I say, the Jews were unable, unwilling, unprepared for the battle. You see, it's like this. The land in the Old Testament is a type of the millennium in, you know, post the church's rapture, okay? But at the same time, the land in the Old Testament, which you'd have to fight for, is a picture of battling the old man, which you have to do like every day, like every hour, like every minute. And the longer you have been saved, the more interaction you have with the world or yourself, the more time you spend trying to do something for the Lord, you will soon discover how difficult it is to stay consecrated, to stay disciplined, to stay uh, totally focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. You will need tunnel vision in some ways. It's like I'm looking into my camera now and I've got birds to my right, I've got birds to my left, I've got a chopper that's just flown over me, I've got traffic which uh, drives behind me, which I can hear, and maybe you can too. 
and what I don't want to do is lose the focus. I want to see, I want to keep focusing on the camera. I want to speak to you as best as I can without losing my train of thought. I need tunnel vision and it's difficult because I can see things to my right, to my left, like a fly, which has just appeared from nowhere. And normally, if I wasn't filming, I'd be taking in all the sights. And that's a good uh, lesson when it comes to discipline. But again, I know that I can't live it, as they say, and I thought I would have to live it in order to somehow please the Lord, like concerning my salvation, then I'll be quite honest and say to you all now that I wouldn't even bother. I would switch this camera off, close this wonderful book that I love so very much, and just go home and do my own thing. If you were to say to me, James, your salvation depends on how you live, today, tomorrow, next week, I would say, well, you know what? I'm old enough to know what I'm all about, and I know that I can't live it. I can't be perfect. Abraham couldn't be perfect. Abraham would fail the Lord with Hagar, Ishmael, and other accounts as we go through Genesis. And I think to myself, well, if he wasn't able to live it, like they say, how could I be able to live it? Paul couldn't live it. Romans 7, a wretched man that I am, what I don't want to do, I do, and what I want to do, I don't do. Uh, Philippians 3, I haven't yet reached the level of righteousness. Uh, I suffer all things uh, but dung for the Lord. In other words, I will suffer loss in all things. The world is dung to me. Another slight paraphrase. It's in uh, Philippians chapter 2. If you want to check it out. I think it's verse 8, but I might be wrong. Paul was a man grounded. He had his feet on the ground. Abraham was a man grounded. He had his feet on the ground. In fact, most of the men in Scripture were real men. Some uh, some married, some not, but they were real men. John the Baptist was a real man's man. Unmarried, as far as we can tell. No children, as far as we can tell, but what a man. What a character. And yet, I'll put it this way. If he was to go into a typical church today, any church anywhere in the world, just a typical church, conservative or liberal, dressed like he would dress in uh, the Gospels, they wouldn't let him pass the front door. They would say to him, this isn't a place for you, Mr. John the Baptist. This is a good place. We, you know, we wear ties here. We wear suits here. <laughs> and the ladies wear nice hats. Sorry, Mr. Baptist, but we don't think this, this is the place for you. Maybe you will be welcome down the road. And he turns around and walks to a different church. And it's the same story again. We don't want you here. Look at how you dress. You're crude. You raise your voice. You get in people's faces. We are respectable people. We are parts of the lodge. We are part of the Rotary Club. Most churches, most Presbyterian churches, incidentally, are heavily affiliated to Freemasonry. Did you know that? When was the last time you heard a Presbyterian preach against Freemasonry? When was the last time you had a Calvinist preach against Freemasonry? And you say, never. Well, why are you surprised? There's a land, 14, north, south, east, west. A land I will give you and your seed forever. So the land was given to the Jews 
via Abraham as a gift. An unconditional gift is there, but you've got to go and fight for it. It's there, but you have to get your hands dirty. And yes, you have to shed blood like Joshua, like David, even King Saul, the first king of Israel. And much of the Old Testament, if you haven't already discovered, is a very bloody book. I mean, they fought. They killed people. They cut people's heads off. David took Goliath's head off. Revelation 19 speaks about Christ taking people's heads off at the second advent. When was the last time you heard that preached in any church? How about never? Sixteen again, and I'll move on. And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, and he did, so that if a man can count the dust of the earth, which he can't, then shall thy seed also be numbered. Starts with one man. At this time, probably in his 70s, and most people say retired, enjoying himself, and yet his best years were still ahead of him, which is a great lesson for us. If you are in your 60s or your 70s, and you can walk, you can open your mouth, you can feed yourself, you can dress yourself, and you can read the scriptures, there is work for you. It may not be on the same scale as a man half your age, fine, but there is work for you. You can leave tracks on buses, you can leave tracks on trains, you can leave tracks in people's letterboxes. Although I think parts of America, that's illegal, so check the laws if you want to do it that way. You can leave tracks and books in the library. You can uh, leave tracks and letterboxes, although it may be illegal in America and other parts of the world, so check the laws before you do that. And yes, you are told to obey the laws. You are told to obey the powers that be, uh, Romans 13. But Acts 5 says you only obey such laws if they don't directly clash with the Scripture. In other words, you take the Scripture over secularism or society. But if society gives you a commandment which isn't prohibited, which isn't uh, sinful, or if the state says to do something which is sinful, I should say, or if the state says do this or that, and this says don't do it, go with the Scripture. But if it, uh, it's just a general admonition to like pay your taxes or put the rubbish bin out on a particular time, on a particular day, or I don't know, get your road tax for your car, or do this or that, obey it, of course. Don't be a maverick, don't be some sort of a fanatic or some sort of a <coughs> fruitcake who goes around doing his own thing. You know, there are rules in society, there's rules in the family house. There's rules at your place of employment. There's rules in society. There's rules when you get on a bus in the morning. There's rules when you get on a train in the morning. You try getting on a train sometime. I'll get back to this in a minute. You get on a train one morning and it's rush hour, okay? And you put your feet on the uh, seat in front of you. So you sit down, 7 a.m., crowded train, and you put your feet up on the seat in front of you, okay? And you are sitting back, very relaxed, and you watch people all around you giving you a filthy look and start telling you, get your feet down, I want to sit there. And you say, no, as far as I'm concerned, this is my truth, this is my right. As far as I'm concerned, I want to do what I want to do. 
It wouldn't happen, of course, but let's just say for argument's sake, that's what a person would say. Within five minutes, the inspector has been called for, or the train guard, if they are on such a train, <clears throat> and normally they will be, at seven in the morning, they want to check your tickets, and he will come along, or she will come along, and she will say to you, get your feet off the chair, or get your feet off the seat. It's reserved, or it's a seat for people to sit on. And you say, no, I won't do it. I believe my right is to do what I'm doing. I have my rights, or I have my, I have my uh, reality. I have my own beliefs, you have your own beliefs. What do you think is right? I don't think is right. And the guard says, okay, fine. And she may stop the train, and now you've got a whole carriage full of people just screaming at you because they're late for work now. And you sit tight and you say to yourself, no, I'm not going to move. I feel I'm right. I have my own truth, my own beliefs, as it were. I don't believe that anyone can tell me what to do. And within five minutes of the train being forced to stop, which may happen, somebody phones the uh, transport police. And a couple of guys turn up and they say, right, get your feet off the seats. And you say, no, I won't do it. I paid for my ticket. This is my right to do what I'm doing. There's no such thing as absolute truths. Now, of course, I'm pushing a point here, you understand. Within five minutes of the boys in blue arriving on the train, you're in cuffs. And they are dragging you, if they have to, off the train. You're not so sure of yourself now, are you? And everyone's watching you as you get dragged off the train, laughing at you, making quite a commotion because you were like a fool, you behave like a moron, and they drag you off the uh, train, and they say, we're going to give you a fine. And you say, no, I won't pay the fine. And they write you out uh, a docket, I think it is, and they say, what's your name and address, so on and so forth. And you say, I won't tell you. And they say, well, you know, make it hard for yourself if you want. We have the right to arrest you. And you say, well, do what you want. And you really become obnoxious. You really are sure of yourselves of yourself and they say right and they call for a car the police car arrives you're putting cuffs and into the back of the police car or the police van you go off to the station you go and you see the custody sergeant and he or she says you know who are you why are you here sort of thing and you start to tell them who you are or maybe you don't tell them you want to remain silent and they say right well we will book you in as such and such a person and you say do what you will you can't tell me what to do I'm my own man blah 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 and they hold you in the cells for maybe six hours and eventually they find out who you are. Maybe they take your fingerprints, maybe they can check you against their databases and eventually they know who you are and they say, well, we're going to bail you and if you don't return on a such and such a date, at a particular time, we will issue an arrest warrant for you and it continues to deteriorate for you and you start to become more arrogant more obnoxious, more rebellious, and eventually you are arrested a week or two later, dragged before a court, and given a huge fine, and you say, I won't pay it, and the next thing you know, the bailiffs are at your house, and they are taking stuff from your house, which they can do, and you start to fight them, and one of them gets knocked down, and you are now arrested for assault. The picture is this, it's going to deteriorate, it's going to go from bad to worse. Much like people's sins, they start off with small sins and they deteriorate. But here, the promise has been made to take the land and as a result, the Lord will bless Abraham and co, it will expand out. 
And like I say, the Middle East today, one day will be given to the Jews, New Earth. Go to chapter 14, please. Look, if you will, at verse 13. And there came one that had escaped, and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt in the plain of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol, and brother of Ana. And these were confederates with Abram. So this is the first direct mention to Hebrew, Hebrews, Jews. Yes, it will start with Judah as such, Judah being one of uh, Jacob's children, but it goes back further than that. It starts back with Abraham, Abram, Abraham. And here, he is referred to as a Hebrew, which also denotes a change in his station. He was obviously, I would think, a Gentile initially, like Joshua 24, 22, I think it's 24, and the Lord pulled him out of pagan worship, like I say, and chapter 12, he's being called to service, picturing someone being called to repent. I'll come back to that in a minute. But here, first time reference to being Hebrew, and he's been able to make a confederate, an alliance, so on and so forth. Look at verse 14, please. And when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318, and pursued them unto Dan. Now, weapons, Christians, can we arm ourselves? Should we fight? Can you find any verse in the New Testament where the apostles, in Acts of the Apostles, ever took hold of a weapon, ever used it against anyone, anywhere, at any time? And the answer, of course, is no. Jesus Christ didn't use a weapon a day in his life. Yes, there is an account. I think it's from Luke's Gospel, where he says, you know, get yourself a sword or two, and Peter says, I've got a sword, into the, you know, it's enough, it's good. But those swords, or that particular sword, was no doubt used to keep maybe wild animals at bay. It wasn't used, or that sword, that weapon, wasn't uh, used to fight someone. You were told in uh, Matthew 5, if somebody punches you, take it. Difficult, I know. You were told to turn the other cheek. Difficult, I know. But you were told to do so, nevertheless. So when it comes to weapons, when it comes to the New Testament, can you arm yourself? Well, in the UK, weapons are illegal. In America, they have guns, they have bazookas, they have uh, machetes. In fact, in America, they can buy uh, tasers. In America, they can buy a uh, pepper spray. In the UK, you can't buy a taser. You can't buy um, tasers, pepper spray. You can't buy a gun in the UK. You can't buy a machete in the UK. And if you do, you would be arrested. So, for the American Christian, they have a somewhat of a dilemma because their constitution, on the one hand, allows them to be armed, which, okay, fine, obey the powers that be, uh, Romans 13. And yet, on the other hand, Matthew 5, turn the other cheek, Acts of the Apostles, Paul was beaten, whipped, shipwrecked, uh, would be slapped, Peter and John were also physically assaulted, and never once does Peter go back later armed 
Never once does Paul go about later, toured up, as they say. Never once does anyone in the book of Acts or the epistles go about later and take vengeance. So there is a slight difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And here Abraham has been told that Lot, his brother, when in reality he was his nephew, but it's a term to denote uh, intimacy, brothers, nephews, so on and so forth, is going to try and take Lot back. He's going to try and rescue him. And he will do so with his armed, trained servants. Now, Abraham is like David. David was a king. David was a leader. Abraham was a prophet. In fact, David was a uh, priest, prophet, king, like Jesus Christ. Whereas Abraham was just a prophet. But Abraham was a leader. David was a leader. Abraham was a leader over his people. David was a leader over his people. For today, it's not quite the same thing. You might be a leader of a church or ministry or fellowship. You might be head over your family. But you're not head over a people. The church in the New Covenant is not the same as the church in the Old Covenant. In the Old Covenant, you have to fight you had to kill. You had to enforce the Mosaic Covenants on your own people, which they would enter into, incidentally, voluntarily. They weren't forced to enter in to the Old Testament Covenant, which I will maybe discuss when we get to the book of Exodus. My goal is to work through the Old Testament from the open-air pole for like we are currently doing. But for the New Covenants, you aren't told anywhere to put anyone to death. In the New Covenant, if a man sins, if a woman sins, you are, you are to put him out. You are to cut fellowship with them. You are to shun them. Not in the sense to uh, make them feel like they're unsaved, but in the sense of making them ashamed of what they have done and then bring them back into fellowship uh, with your community, so on and so forth. Also, Dan is obviously a land, and I would suggest that Dan, as a land, later becomes part of Dan the tribe. And Dan the tribe, we believe, is going to perhaps produce the Antichrist, although that's only a theory. 15.1. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield, and thy exceeding great reward. So, Chapter 12, Abram, Abraham is called out of his people. Spiritualize it to someone living today, there is a, that's a picture of somebody being convicted of their sins. Okay, There's a picture there of someone having their sins revealed to them. The work of the Holy Ghost is to convict a sinner of his or her sins. And yet for today, most people don't seem to be convicted. For today, most people don't even care about what they do, whether saved or unsaved. But, scripturally speaking, Genesis 12 is a picture, a type of someone in the New Covenant having his or her sins made known to them. They are convicted. And of course, what comes after that is found here in, 15, in chapter 15 concerning justification. And I'll come back and further discuss that shortly. Latter parts of uh, verse 1. I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. He's going to say this to Abraham. 
If you follow me, you will never want. Like the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I will protect you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Uh, once I have begun a good work in you, I will bring it to completion. Going back to salvation being of the Lord, not of man. John 1 says that you weren't born of the flesh, you weren't born of the will of man, you weren't born via a church or via a sacrament, but you were born of God. Salvation is of the Lord. How the Lord chooses to dispense one salvation is up to him. He may do it this way, he may do it that way. But it's all going to be grace, being Christ's, uh, sorry, God's righteousness, God's righteousness at Christ's expense. Verse 2, And Abram said, Lord, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? And the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. He's an old man, and he's obviously been unable to have children with his wife, like the parents of John the Baptist. And there was a stigma that went along with such. And the Lord has appeared to Abraham, or now still referred to as uh, Abram. He doesn't yet get the new name of Abraham, meaning father of nations. And he thinks to himself, how can this possibly happen? A bit like Mary, when the uh, angel would appear to her, Gabriel, and she says, how can it be? You know, I'm just a child. And he says, the, uh, the uh, Holy Ghost will over, overcome you, uh, and you will conceive and give birth to the Son of God, so on and so forth. And yet when Zacharias comes into the presence of the same angel, he says, what's going on here? You know, I'm just a priest, so on and so forth. And the angel says to him, Gabriel, because you haven't believed, you're now dumb. You can't speak until the birth of John. Why? He's older. He's more accountable. Mary was a child, 14, 15, maybe 16. So the Lord showed her great mercy because she is a child, but Zacharias, up in years, should have known better. His faith was limited. His faith needed to be increased. Like the apostles would say to the Lord, increase our faith. And yes, you can ask to have your faith increased as well. Three, and Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. The Lord likes to do things sometimes in a big way, sometimes in a little way. He takes great delight in uh, fools like myself, and yes, we are fools, for Christ's sake, don't, don't uh, think higher of yourself than you should do. If you are born again, you know, humble yourself. You're just dust and ashes, you're just an unclean rag. The Lord takes great delight in using a fool like me to stand on a street corner and preach the gospel, give out tracts to people and to be shunned, to be sometimes ridiculed, sometimes uh, shouted at, and they think, I'm a fool, fine, I'll take it, you know, it's a great blessing to be called a fool, for Christ's sake. But, from the Lord's perspective, he gets a lot of glory from that. He loves it when he sees one of his children being just treated like filth. Not because he doesn't love the children, no, no, no. He takes a lot of delight from that, because what you are doing is foolishness to the world. 
preaching or the preaching or any preaching of the gospel is foolishness to them which are perishing, but to those of us which are saved, it is a power of God unto salvation. So the Lord does big things and little things. He would say to Noah, build an ark. Never been done before, never been done since. And Noah thought to himself, wow, a big ark, the size of one of the old British aircraft carriers, like Invincible, like Ark Royal, like uh, uh, Illustrious, all now at a service, incidentally. And he built that ark, and of course you know what happened. Friends and family, colleagues, acquaintances, neighbors would come along and make fun of Noah, that fruitcake, building this big boat. Why are you building an ark? Why are you building a boat? Why are you building a ship, Noah? You know, we're all God's children, aren't we? He loves us all, doesn't he? <laughs> Not really. I mean, sure, he will love you via Christ, but outside of Christ, there's no love for you. Not when it comes to saving your souls. Yes, he will feed you, Matthew 5. Yes, he will allow you to enjoy the sun coming up and going down, but that's not salvation. You're not born again until you are, well, you're not a child of God, I should say, until you're born again. Galatians chapter 3. There's no such thing as God loving everyone within, you know, with an unconditional love outside of Jesus Christ. Outside of Christ, you're lost. Five. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars, that thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. Abraham, take a look into space. How many stars can you see? Too many to count, like the children of Israel. Verse 6, And he believed in the Lord. And he counted it to him for righteousness. You get saved by believing on the Lord. Here, the Lord, Elohim, Father, Son, and Spirit, has made a promise to Abraham. And the promise is based on the stars, like I say. Look now, verse 5, toward heaven, and tell the stars. If thou be able to number them, which of course he could not. And he said unto him, so shall thy seed be. He wants, he wants to make it impossible he wants to make it impossible for Abraham to ever say down the line, well, I got to glory because I was able to count all of the stars, which, of course, is impossible. He wants to give Abraham uh, this opportunity to try and do something which he cannot do. He wants to save Abraham via grace. He wants to save you and I via grace. And verse 6, And he believed in the Lord, faith alone, and he counted to him for righteousness, like imputation. So one more time, chapter 12, he's called out of his family. That's stage one of conviction. That's stage one of bringing a sinner to the end of him or herself. Break him down if you will. Chapter 15, a promise has been made. And the man who made the promise is, of course, Christ Jesus. The promise has been made to Abram, and he believes the promise made to him. You come to the Saviour, you believe on him, you trust in him, then you're saved. So the promise was made to Abram, and the person who made the promise to Abraham is, uh, 
excuse me, the person who made the promise to Abram is Christ, the person that we believe on in the new covenant. It's going to be grace from Calvary to creation, or from creation to Calvary, I should say. It's going to be grace from the beginning to the end. You can't be saved any other way. Also be mindful that not only is Abraham saved here by faith alone, but he's saved without any circumcision. He's not circumcised until chapter 17, which, if you want to, will be a picture of one's baptism. 14. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterward shall they come out with great substance. So, the Lord will deal with his own people, like a parent will deal with their child. But on top of the Lord dealing with his own children in a loving way, he also deals with unsaved people. He won't allow sin just to run its course, like indefinitely. He would give Noah the commission to build the ark. And of course, it took 120 years. And he did so because he wanted people to board the ark. He wants people today, right now, to board the ark, the ark of Christ. And yet people will not board the ark because John 3 says how men and women love darkness more than light. Why? Because the deeds are evil. The deeds are wicked and they won't come to light to be reproved, so on and so forth. So verse 14 will deal clearly and explicitly with the Lord taking a nation and punishing such people. Look at World War II. The Lord raises up Hitler, allows him to come to a position of uh, power. Germany at that time was split. Half was Lutheran, half was Catholic. Europe was pretty secular. By 1939, no more than a third of Brits went to church and Britain was doing its own thing. By the late 1930s, early 1940s, Hollywood was churning out many movies, some blasphemous, some you wouldn't waste five minutes watching, and those films were being sent around the world, contaminating the world. In fact, I remember when I was in Romania some years ago, and I remember going out with, the, with this couple of missionaries from America, and I was able to go into one of the homes that uh, they were responsible for, and they had a lot of young people there, single mothers, and they had a television on. I'm not sure why they wanted to allow televisions into such houses, but there you are. And they're watching some American drama. I forget what it was. And one of the girls there who spoke a bit of English was cursing. And the missionary that I was with at the time was arguing with her in Romanian to close her mouth. And I realized, like straight away, that Hollywood has contaminated people. Hollywood has contaminated people all over the world. Not just in America, but Britain, Europe, even to Romania. 2002, 2003. People watching television, they hear the language that Hollywood or Hollywood produce, and they mimic what they hear. They are corrupted by what they hear. And it was so sad to watch this missionary early 60s, not in the best of health, arguing in Romanian with this young girl, 18, 19, to watch what she was saying. 
But it begs the question, why allow a television into such a property to begin with? So Hitler is raised up, Mussolini is raised up, America at that time is run by Roosevelt, and they sit back. They don't want to get involved in another European war, which was fair enough, I suppose. And of course, you know what happens, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, and that allowed the Americans to come into the war. Incidentally, as a quick footnote, around that time, 1939-1940-41, the American ambassador in Britain was Joe Kennedy, who was the father of John Kennedy. And Joe Kennedy, a good Catholic man, Knights of Malta, I seem to recall, didn't want America to get involved in the war. He was a pacifist, Kennedy, this is. And Kennedy was emailing, or not emailing, he was wiring, I should say, not emailing. He was wiring back to Washington that Britain wasn't going to survive, that the war would soon come to an end, that the Brits would capitulate. And I think he was somehow rejoicing in that idea, because Britain was a Protestant nation, gave the world the King James, and as a Catholic, he thought, well, Hitler's a Catholic, Mussolini is a Catholic, perhaps if Britain falls, and he was very sure that she would fall, hence he was saying to Roosevelt, don't come into the war, just let it run its course, that perhaps Britain would become a Catholic nation again. And of course, it didn't happen. Britain stood firm, and America came into the war. But by the end of the war, the Lord would use the Russians to pretty much wipe out Germany. The Russians were the first troops into Germany, and the Brits and the Americans and the Canadians and the Australians and the New Zealanders and most of the Commonwealth countries, to their shame, sat outside of the gates of Berlin because it had been decided by the big three, Churchill, Truman by this stage because Roosevelt was dead, and uh, Stalin, that the Russians would mop up, as it were, uh, collateral damage, as they call it, and go into Germany and get the booty. And of course, when they arrived, these Russian uh, conscripts mostly couldn't read or write. They just raped women left, right, and center. And I read one account. There were two million abortions, 1946. Yes, I'm sure it's true that British soldiers also and Canadian soldiers, and American soldiers, and French, and any other country you can imagine, were also guilty of such an atrocity. I remember Patrick telling me a story of a guy he knew before he got saved, who was a Catholic, and he was up in years, and he was probably about 85, 90, and he was dying, and Patrick went to visit him, and he was in such a mess, and he was semi-conscious, very ill, dying, like I say. And he kept saying, oh, if only I hadn't done this, you know, if I hadn't done that, sins of the flesh, I feel so guilty, this and that. And he'd be in the war, he was a British soldier. And I think you can imagine what he'd probably got up to during the war. And as he got older, it was come back to haunt him. Now, had he been born again, which he wasn't, he was a Catholic, but had he been born again, he wouldn't have been so torn up and the priest was called for, did his mumbo-jumbo, and a few days later, he still churned up. 
if only I hadn't done this, if only I hadn't done that, blah, blah, blah. And I think we can guess what this British soldier at the time, 17, 18, no more than 20, had got up to. And I'm sure American soldiers during the war in Germany, or how about Korea, or how about Vietnam, got up to no good. I'm sure British soldiers over the last 45, 50 years got up to no good. Man at his best state is no good. Man at his best state is altogether vanity. There isn't a just man on the face of the earth. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Don't kid yourself. Listen, if you're not saved, don't kid yourself. Don't keep justifying yourself. Don't keep saying, well, I'm a good man. You know, I've got four or five children. I am putting a roof over my family's house. Big deal. You are expected to do that. Or I go to work every morning, or I work two or three jobs to support my family. I'm a good man. No, you're not. You are a decent man. Of course you are but you are expected to do that. Don't use that as some kind of justification to not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Or don't use that in the hope that God will just let you into heaven when you die. It doesn't work that way. So what about grace? So chapter 12 deals with uh, conviction. Chapter 15 deals with justification without any works praise the lord and if you go to uh, uh 16 look at verse 2 please and sari said unto abram behold now the lord hath restrained me from bearing i pray thee go in unto my maid it may be that i may obtain children by her and Abram hearkened to the voice of Sari. He should have waited. He's been promised a seed. But, like I say, he jumped the gun. Most men jump the gun. Most men will be told not to do something, and they will do it anyway. Or they're told to do something, and they won't do it. Most men are very weak. And Abram was no exception. And here, like Adam, he's listening to a woman. The serpent was able to deceive the woman. First Timothy chapter 2, and as a result, Adam was also deceived. But go back to Genesis chapter 2 and read it carefully. Genesis 2, Eve is standing near the serpents, and Adam is maybe a couple of yards, either behind her or beside her, she listens to the words of the serpents. She falls. Adam listens to the words of his wife. He falls. And the entire human race collapse, go into apostasy. Seven. And the angel of the Lord found her by a fountain of water in the wilderness, by the fountain the way to Shur. So, you've got Hagar, verse 1, Sarah's handmaid, servant, assistant, PA, call it what you will. She's an Egyptian, like Yasser Arafat was. And she, if you listen to Muslims, is the mother of Islam. In fact, if you listen to Muslims, they believe that Muhammad was once married to Mary, the mother 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet I saw the Pope last week in Egypt, I think, or Turkey, arriving at some nice posh place. And this mullah arrived, hugs and kisses like they are the best of friends. And I thought, number one, he won't rebuke <coughs> the mullah <coughs> for believing that Jesus was just a prophet. <coughs> number two, he won't confront the mullah for his beliefs that Muhammad, once upon a time, married Mary, the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that verse from 2 John came to my mind concerning those that come to your house, concerning people that bring you another gospel, that bring you a doctrine which is foreign to Scripture. 2 John says, don't greet them, don't allow them into your house, and don't shake their hands either. But the Pope had no problem whatsoever with greeting him like an old buddy. And I thought, yep, they're both cut from the same cloth. The Catholics worship Mary, the Muslims worship Mary via Muhammad. In fact, even the Hindus, <clears throat> once a year, will find a local Catholic church going to such a place and they will find the Lady Altar, as it's called, and they will put flowers all around the Lady Altar. They will pay homage to Mary because she is one of their gods. They think very highly of Mary. But here the angel of the Lord, being Jesus Christ, has found her, Hagar, by a fountain of water. And it's very interesting because if you think of Muslims, they believe, like I say, that Jesus was just a prophet, wasn't the Son of God, didn't die for anyone, and they are very much in love with Muhammad. And yet, just check out his character, check out his CV, or resume, if you will. He's no better than you and I. And therefore, you've got the angel of the Lord, a Christophany, being Jesus Christ, of course, about to name, about to interact with the mother of Muslims if you take that account to be so. It's a belief that they have. They believe that Muhammad would come via Ishmael. 11. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Behold, thou art with child, and shalt bear a son, and shalt call his name Ishmael, because the Lord hath heard thy affliction. So Jesus meets Hagar, and he says to Hagar, By the way, you're going to have a son, and you will call him Ishmael. Christ has named, if you will, the forerunner for Muhammad, if you take that to be the case. For me, maybe, I don't know. But Muslims believe that they can trace their line from Muhammad back to Ishmael. But let's say that's the case. So what? The covenant, when it comes to the land, the covenant, when it comes to being the Lord's people, from Genesis to uh, Malachi, is going to be given to Jacob, not Esau, not Ishmael. Behold, thou art with child, and she was, and shalt bear a son, and she did, and shalt call his name Ishmael. Very similar to Mary, you will give birth to the Son of God, 
he will get the throne of his father David, he will be great, and he will rule forever and ever. He will rule over a kingdom forever and ever, which is still to occur. Because the Lord had heard thy affliction, Lord in uppercase, and of course she heads off with that encounter and gives birth to Ishmael, like I say. And from there you get the Arabs, the Muslims and the Jews, and they've been fighting like cats and dogs ever since. 16. And Abram was fourscore and six years old when Hagar by Ishmael to Abram. He's what, 86? And most people, if they get to 86, are at the end of their lives in the September, no, make it the autumn of their years, and they are just sitting back, watching television, reading the paper, perhaps playing golf or bowls. Uh, they call it bowling in the UK. Or they may go swimming or play tennis. They may like to walk. For them, their life's over. They are grandparents, great-grandparents. Life is good or has been good for them. And yet this guy, his life is just beginning. 17.1 And when Abram was 90 years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. Be upright, Abraham. Not sinless, because Abraham's blood was no good. Abraham is a descendant from uh, the sons of Noah. He wasn't a sinless man. Ishmael wouldn't be a sinless man. Jacob, Esau, were not sinless people. They would all fail. Everyone in the scripture would fail, some more than others. In fact, even Daniel, although he is very difficult to critique when you read his book, was still a sinner because he prayed three times a day towards Jerusalem. Why would you pray if you weren't a sinner? People that pray are sinners. You wouldn't pray if you weren't a sinner. And yes, Jesus would pray as an example to the apostles, but Jesus had two natures, son of man, son of God, human and divine. What Christ did, nine times out of 10, was to set an example to the disciples and vicariously, you and I. But he didn't have to pray. He didn't have to eat, sleep, or do anything. But he did so, so he could understand creation. He could understand what it's like to be a human. He knows what it's like to be God and man. Muhammad doesn't know what it's like to be God and man. I don't know what it's like to be God and man. The Pope doesn't know what it's like to be God and man. But Jesus knows what it's like to be God and man. And that's why it says over in Hebrews, how he's able to help you if you come unto him, because he knows what it's like. He's been through the same uh, things we've been through, but without sin, of course. Abraham, 99 years old, still called Abram. I am the almighty God, the all-powerful one. Walk before me, like Enoch would walk with the Lord. Follow thou me, John uh, 21. If you are saved, you follow the Lord. You don't follow a church. You don't follow a ministry or minister. You follow the Lord. He loves you. The church doesn't love you. He died for you. The church didn't die for you. He will take you to heaven when you die. The church can't do that for you. 
And be thou perfect in the sense of being complete, in the sense of not being double-minded, like what James speaks about. Don't be double-minded. Stay consistent. Stay close to me. And for today, we would suggest you do so via the Scripture. Look at verse 6, please. And I will make thee exceeding fruitful, and I will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee, like David, like Solomon, like Saul, like Jehoshaphat. 8. And I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land, wherein thou art a stranger. All the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. 10. This is my covenant which ye shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. Every man-child among you shall be circumcised. 12. And he that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you. Every man-child in your generations. He that is born in a house or bought with money of any stranger which is not of thy seed. So, go back to chapter 12, Conviction. Go back to chapter 15, Justification. And by 17, you've got the call on Abraham, still called Abram, to circumcise the men in his house, starting with himself. Now, for today, we spiritualize that to baptism. But even that doesn't quite do it justice because Old Testament, only men were circumcised, not the women. And yet, for the New Testament, men and women are baptized after they are saved. So, you need to be careful when it comes to trying to harmonize the Old Testament with the New Testament. But you can still see it, can't you? It's going to be grace concerning justification from 15. It's going to be circumcision, which is a physical act, which people can see, which is mirrored by a baptism, which people can see. So, you get baptized for the new covenant, and people can see it. They can see that you've done something publicly as an outward display of your faith, or your baptism is an outward act of an inward work, okay? Scripture says how the Lord looks on the heart, but man looks on the outward appearance. When you get saved, when you believe on the Lord, only he knows that. Later on, someone around you will see you get baptized We'll see you stand up maybe somewhere and confess faith in the Lord. But until you do that, they have no idea what you really believe. 16. And I will bless her and give thee a son also of her. Yea, I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be of her. Sarah, mother of nations. Eve, mother of all living. Eve is a type of Mary. Sarah, is a type of Mary. And here, the switch from 15, Sari to Sarah, has taken place. She, of course, will give birth to uh, Isaac, and from Isaac, it really opens up. And yet, one chapter, it's all well to do, another chapter comes along, and there's sin in the camp. It starts off well with the sons of Jacob, and within five minutes, Joseph has been betrayed, almost left for dead, 
and sold to the Ishmaelites, Gentiles. That's treachery. You've got Joseph as a Jew being sold to the Ishmaelites, being Gentiles. What would the Jews say from uh, Matthew 27? We shan't have this man to reign over us. We have only one king being Caesar. You've got the Jews picking Caesar at the time, Nero, I think from memory, to be their king. And Nero and some of the other Roman emperors were filthy reprobates. They were Gentiles. They would worship many gods. They would worship themselves and some or even pedophiles. And yet the Jews knew that, of course, and decided to pick Caesar over Christ. And Joseph's brethren decided to sell him into the hands of the Ishmaelites, which, if you believe Islam, are descendants of Muhammad. 17. Then Abraham fell upon his face and laughed, and said in his heart, Shall a child be born unto him that is an hundred years old, and shall Sarah that is ninety years old bear? So, he's laughing. The promise has been given. And also note the change in name from Abram to Abraham. He falls on his face and he's laughing because on the one hand it sounds fanciful. 99, 100 years old, you're going to have a child being Isaac, of course, and from Isaac will come the children of Israel and eventually Jesus Christ. At the same time, to be fair to Abraham, he's nervous. He's nervous, and if he was a New Testament believer, I would say that he was reverting back to his old nature. But nobody was born again until the New Covenant. In the Old Testament, you got saved by believing on a person. I'll put it this way. In the Old Testament, a person gave a promise. And I gave it to you from chapters 12, 15, 17. They enter into a covenant voluntarily. They're not coerced in. They enter voluntarily, and later on, they will please themselves via the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20. The promise has been given to a people, okay? But for the New Testament, the person that gave the promise is our Saviour. So I'm not overly uh, surprised to see Abraham laughing. He's partly nervous, and yet also lacking the basic level of faith which goes back to how we all fail the Lord. In fact, Scripture says how fear has torment, but perfect love casts out fear. 18, and Abraham said unto God, O that Ishmael might live before thee. He's now arguing with the Lord, like Moses. Send someone else. I'm not very eloquent. I'm not very good at speaking. I'm a man who isn't able to do the task that you've called me to do. I'm not able to do this, and in essence was correcting the Lord and saying the Lord got it wrong to choose him in the first place. And here Abraham is saying to the Lord, but what about Ishmael, my firstborn, via Hagar, the Egyptian, the mother of the Muslims, allegedly. Um, can't Ishmael be the man that will get this covenant, so on and so forth? 19. And God said, Sarah thy wife shall bear thee a son indeed, and thou shalt call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant 
and with a seed after him, Isaac means laughter, because, ironically, Abraham was laughing, and the Lord took his laughter, partly due to nerves, partly due to unbelief, and allowed his son to be named after Abraham's lack of faith, his uh, fear. The covenant everlasting, and his seed after him. Twenty, and as for Ishmael, I have heard thee. Behold, I have blessed him, and will make him fruitful, and will multiply him exceedingly. Twelve princes shall he beget, and I will make him a great nation, and he did. But when it comes to the covenants, when it comes to the Messiah, when it comes to being a people of the Lord, it's going to go to Isaac, not Ishmael. And he will uh, bring forth twelve princes, being Ishmael. And if you know history, it will continue right up until the second coming of the Lord. Wars, fights, arguments, splits, so forth, Jew against Muslim, Muslim against Jew. And the devil loves it. And yet the Lord says, if you just believe in my son, I will save you if you are Muslim. I will save you if you are a Jew. The Muslim says, well, Lord, Jesus was a good man. He was a prophet, but he was only a prophet. Muhammad was the final prophet, the best of the best, if you will, and they pass up salvation. The Jews say, well, Jesus was a Jew, and our Talmud tells us that he was conceived by a Roman soldier raping Mary, and therefore we shan't believe on him, so on and so forth, and they pass up the chance to be saved. The Jew dies in his sins and goes to hell. The Muslim dies in his sins and goes to hell. 23. And Abraham took Ishmael his son, and all that were born in his house, and all that were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in the selfsame day as God had said unto him, If you are saved, you are bought with a price. You are bought with a price. You are bought with the blood of Christ. So here you've got a picture of Abraham, a literal man, having literal servants that he's paid for, and that goes into slavery, which I won't look at today. And therefore, because he is head of the house, he will circumcise the men in his house, which sort of feeds into covenant theology. But I won't touch on that now. Abraham took Ishmael, his son, firstborn, and all that were born in his house, and all that were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and circumcised them, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in the selfsame day as God had said unto him. You get saved by believing. Fast forward to your baptism. You do so because the Lord wants you to show people that you believed on him. He wants you to be identified in public that you are now a Christian. He wants people to see that something has taken place to you. And here the covenant is given to the men, not the women, unlike this uh, mutilation which takes place in Islamic countries where they just completely uh, destroy the woman's uh, uh, womanhood. They just completely mutilate her. And they do so to somehow bring their women closer to Allah. Well, you don't need to do that. Almighty God has come to the earth. He's a bridge between heaven and earth, like Jacob's ladder. Or look at it this way. New Jerusalem comes down, Revelation 21, and it hovers over the new earth. 
it may land on the new earth, I'm not overly sure. You've got heaven coming to earth, fellowship. Son of man, John chapter 1, you'll see angels ascending and descending upon me. Bridge between heaven and earth. One mediator between man and God, the man, Christ Jesus. Or, Revelation chapter 6, you've got hell from beneath coming up. And it would appear from Revelation chapter 6, verse 9, I think, or verse 10, that those that are in hell are going to be somehow dragged across the earth. It says how death and hell appear on the earth via the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in the self same day as God had said unto him. 24 says Abraham was 90 years old and nine when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. So he obeys the Lord. Abraham obeys the Lord. And if you get saved by believing on the blood and you continue on with the Lord, you will eventually get baptized. It's preferable to be baptized by total omission, uh, by total immersion, I should say, <laughs> total immersion, but the actual mode itself isn't really the issue. The issue is the blood. The issue is, have you appropriated atonement? The issue is, have you received the blood? The issue is, have you believed on the blood? And if you have, you're saved. And then once you get saved, if you can, get yourself baptized. I think I will start to wrap this message up and just say that so far what you've seen in Genesis are good people, decent people, godly people, not sinless people, flawed. Abraham would jump the gun with Hagar. Abraham would laugh at the Lord. Abraham would argue with the Lord concerning Ishmael. Moses would also argue with the Lord. If you go to uh, Acts 10, you've got Peter arguing with the Lord about what he should or shouldn't eat. You've got Paul vicariously arguing with the uh, Spirit of God not to go up to Jerusalem. And that's why we need to not kid ourselves if we are saved and not think of ourselves more than we actually are. We're just flesh and blood and people could just humble themselves a lot more and uh, allow the Lord to work through us. We'd be so much better off. If you think of that account from the book of James, it speaks about Elijah being a man subject to passions like us. And he was able to do great things for the Lord, but he wasn't perfect. Um, his associates weren't perfect. Daniel would not stop Nebuchadnezzar bowing down to him. Joseph would play with his brothers. He would toy with his brothers. He would cause his brothers to be uh, greatly distressed as a way of getting back at them for selling him into slavery, and yet when Christ comes up out of the tomb, there's no sense of animosity there. There's no sense of, you know, you guys doubted me. You guys all ran away when the going got tough. There's so much love in Christ. I mean, we don't really understand the love of God, the love of Christ. And you think of other faiths that are desperately trying to appease their deities, like the Hindus, like the Sikhs. And you think of the hamster on the wheel going around and around and around. 
And you think of those poor Hindus and Sikhs that are going to their temples regularly and praying to their gods or God to be forgiven. And they are praying for their loved ones that are no longer with them because they think that perhaps their loved ones are not safe and they are continuing to do works and paying the gurus, the priests, the shamans to intercede on their behalf, like the Catholics with the priests. Catholics are very mindful, very concerned about purgatory. Catholics don't think much about hell. The greatest fear for a Catholic is purgatory. The greatest worry for a Catholic is that when he or she dies, they don't go straight to heaven because they're not saved. They have no notion of salvation. And therefore, they know they will go to purgatory. And according to their belief system, which is fallacious, they believe that they will be burned, purged from within, to be made clean, to be made uh, righteous, to be able to stand in the presence of the Lord, to be in fellowship with the Lord. And they will go to Mass regularly, or they will give money to their priests to say Masses for their dead uh, parents, their dead children, dead friends and family. And the priests will, of course, take their money because it's part of their living, part of their livelihoods, and they will say Masses for their dead relatives, which can't help anyone. Listen, if you're not a saved man, you die without Christ, you're finished. That's all there is to it. No priest can help you. Christ is our priest. No prophet can help you. Christ is our prophet. No king can help you. Christ is our king. He's a priest, he's a prophet, he's a king. He's a mediator. He would taste death for every man. He went to heaven and back. He's the bridge between heaven and earth. He knows what it's like to be God and also what it's like to be man. You want to worship someone, you want to speak to someone, you want to live for someone, you want to worship someone who's worthy, how about him? How about him? Take his hand, believe on him, trust in him, and the scripture says you have passed from death unto life, you're now born again, and now it's time for you to put the old man to death. It won't be easy. Most Christians eventually just throw in the towel. Most saved people just throw in the towel and they stop living for the Lord or they do bits and pieces for the Lord every so often just to appease them, like go to church once a week or maybe twice a week, maybe three times a week. And once they leave their church, they're back into the world. I've seen people that go to churches and they're very pious, they wear ties and the women dress up in nice hats, like I say, and they wear nice suits. They all sit very immaculately no joking, no talking, and the preacher gives a very serious message from, could be the King James, could be the NIV, could be the ESV, it could be any translation you care to name. And they do their stuff, and they go forward for the prayers, and the minute the service is finished, and the final prayers have been given, out they go, back into the world. They're no different to unsaved people. They may be saved, but when it comes to service, when it comes to working for the Lord, they are insignificant when it comes to eternity. So I will close it there at the back end of uh, chapter 17 from Genesis and pick up next week from chapter 18. The Lord bless you all and Maranatha.